Welcome to Uncommon Core, where we explore the big ideas in crypto from first principles. Today, we bring you a special episode. This is actually part two of an interview I did with Anna Rose of the Zero Knowledge Podcast and Tarun Chitra of Gauntlet. Together, we explore the rise of governance tokens by looking at SushiSwap as our case study. Part one has been released on the ZK Podcast and you can find the link to it in the show notes. It's not necessary for you to follow along, but it was a great and very lively discussion and I still recommend you listen to it first. Finally, we recorded this episode the day before Uniswap launched its own token. So keep that in mind when you hear us speculate about its future. Enjoy. So at some point after Chef Nomi had excused himself from the table, there was still this migration plan. And there were still a lot of people who actually still had their LP tokens in the SushiSwap contract. One thing I found crazy was like, as this was happening, I found it wild that people kept their LP tokens there. They didn't crash it. I mean, if you go back to Yam, right? So the, the, mo the moment when most people stopped paying attention to Yam is when this bug happened. And basically you know, the funds were frozen, the governance contract, and then the price crashed, but it didn't crash to zero. And actually, I think over 70% of the Yam tokens were farmed after basically this bug happened because I mean, people didn't stop farming it, right? There was still around $250 million in these staking contracts for the entire duration. And then there was basically, and there was always like governance and community stuff going on behind the scenes. And there were always plans of like, okay, we're going to reboot this. Everyone holds YAM V1 tokens can put them in a migration contract and then they, the YAM V1 tokens are going to get burned and they're going to get YAM V2 tokens out. And at that point, like the, the staking and the original YAM stops. And But up to this point, there was actually farming going on. And the exact same thing happened here. That's why I say it's so irrelevant what happened with Chef Nomi because yeah, I mean, maybe the he took like $14 million, but there were still like $20 million left in the treasury. The treasury itself was never really important. It had no strategic relevance for any of the parties involved. And so Yam still had a market price and the market price was still three to four dollars. And there was still a thousand sushi paid out per block, which is every like 13, 14 seconds. Right. So every 13, 14 seconds, there was still around four thousand dollars worth of sushi paid out. And you know, I'm not sure, but I think off the top of my head, that is a higher block reward than Bitcoin. So if, if you have like a reward paying out that's higher than what Bitcoin miners get, I mean, of course, people are going to get to keep staking. So none of this yeah. matter. Okay. They were chasing like the sushi reward. And again, remember it, not, not, not to, to reiterate this point, but this is a very well orchestrated thing. <laughs> like FTX knows yeah. what it's doing. <laughs> like everyone else kind of is like a follower. It's like a, the leader of a, a, a school of fish. And there's just tons of these followers. And they were like, well, they're still involved. We're going to keep our stuff there. Like, I actually legitimately got messages that were like, Alameda's funds are still in it. Why would I leave? I mean, there was, A, there was no reason to leave. Because, I mean, if the contracts were safe before Chef Nomi left, then they would be safe after, afterward, right? You can still withdraw your money before the migration in like a week or whatever. But why should you stop farming when the block reward is so high? That's the first point. But the second is, and that's like what 
like made, made me really question like okay like even very early on like the role that chef nomi played and like brushing it off as like is completely irrelevant it's like just how beneficial it was how how comfortable for alameda and for fdx that there was suddenly a power vacuum in the sushi community because the original leader suddenly left and now the community was looking for okay so who can lead us and then i mean sam from ftx stepped up and said okay i'll be the new leader of sushi and i'll try to make this project a success and i mean of course a they had like an insane amount of sushi tokens so, so this huge financial incentive even like a direct incentive but then they also had this huge indirect incentive of all the, this run-up that we talked about you know that them uh, being afraid that like uh, Uniswap and Dexas are going to eat their lunch. They, they had this competing exchange project in Serum on Solana. Yeah, so all of this just made an extreme amount of sense that just the way it played out. So if you're a script writer and like, or not even a script writer, <laughs> but if, if you're just the strategist behind all this, then, I mean, you would probably do it exactly the way it played out. You would probably make Chef Nomi disappear and take some money with them and then, so the community, you need someone new to go to, and then to top it all off, but we can talk about that, you should later have Chef Nomi return <laughs> and give back the money. So Sushi can once again dominate the news cycle and have like another token pump. By the way, an, an, another, another, um, another meme that I learned that describes all of this type of stuff that I love is PsyOps. Yeah. Like psychological operations, like that's this entire thing, right? Is, so is psyops and like it's like psyops on psyops on psy. It's like amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you just remember that this is like very well thought out for some participants and absolutely not thought out. Like people are like, well, I guess I'm gonna put like uh, ten million dollars into this unaudited <laughs> smart contract and not think about it. <laughs> like all the 2017 crypto fund managers like showed up out of nowhere and. Like, we're just going to dump money into this. And it's like the more hilarious thing about the everything, uh, the, like the psyops here. Oh, well, the evil VCs are, uh, you know, like taking our lunch. And so, like, we're going to have the community on it. The community is whales who VCs. are crypto <laughs> funds. Bonkers, honestly. Uh, this narrative that is taking place right now in the crypto space, where you have this, this narrative basically against VCs, but behind every fair launch project, are the same two to three large exchanges and two to three huge prop trading firms and then maybe two to three whales and that's it right so you have you have the small guy on twitter who gets like a small bite of the action but i mean none of them matter really it's yeah i mean everyone's kind of falling for this frankly insane narrative kudos to sam because yeah. honestly <laughs> it, you know this is, is like 40 chests and like <laughs> He, he, he also made all of the other exchanges his yeah. minnow. Like Binance and Coinbase just copied and like yeah. FOMO'd into following. Like that's genius. You're like a smaller, much smaller exchange by volume. And you like psyops all the like large competitors of yours to just follow whatever you're doing. That That is like pure magic. Just from a strategy perspective, like it's insane that he, he was able to pull that off. So what you've been describing, by the way, to anyone who didn't follow this, because I just realized we didn't exactly say how uh, Sam or 
He's known as SBF on Twitter. He like he's one of these people who ended up taking over like he and I think was kind of the leader on it, but taking over this multi-sig that was then supposed to control the dev fund, but also, I guess, everything else. The dev else. fund doesn't matter. It's just, it's basically yeah. a tiny detail that like the community latches onto, but it's really about who has like the social capital in this community. Uh, like who, who do the people listen to? So this migration still had to happen. The decision, I guess, to work with Serum was scrapped because that didn't happen. Or was that always considered a future thing? Because, right, it's not a bridge. I think it's still on the table. Fork. But it would be something in the future, I guess. I mean, it's one of these things that the marketing is is eons ahead of the tech. Uh, uh, the Solana bridge doesn't exist. And there's not a particularly good plan for it. You know, I, even before Nomi disappeared, SBF presented a proposal, one of the sushi proposals, that one of the early sushi proposals was, hey... We'll pay you in Serum to move to Serum. Oh, wow. <laughs> Before everything, like there was already like all the like writing was already on the wall. The The thing is that it all of this stuff still fundamentally relies on this core technology that your podcast covers in detail that I think people don't realize is not production ready and like no one has. So these cross-chain bridges are just not in in the shape to like, oh, I'm going to migrate sushi today. Mm. Like, they're just, it's very, very... Fun. Really? All of these bridges have ZK at the bottom? No. You're talking about like the light, like the Plumo type light clients and stuff do, but... Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Well, I also just mean like a lot of the, the press switch style, like relayer type things. A lot of times the ZK stuff is just for compressing the proof to ETH. Yeah. So the ETH, the ETH gas cost is cheap, right? So... But yeah, but you know where I'm going. Yeah, I got, this. I got you. It's, it's not production ready. It's, it's yeah. just not there yet. And like people were sold on this narrative that's that like, oh, we can migrate to Serum. We're gonna migrate. Tomorrow. Got it. Got it. So the migration did go ahead. It was an oddly exciting moment on Twitter where like some people were like waiting, like counting down for the first pool to I mean, migrate. There, there were a lot of reasons to pay attention to the migration. So first of all. Usually, like the migration is pretty complex. It's a pretty complex operation, right? That involves a lot of contracts, involves moving basically a, a lot of money around from that is staked in these contracts, withdrawing it from Uniswap, and then depositing it on SushiSwap, uh, and then paying out these these LP tokens to to their new owners. And if this sounds really complicated and dangerous, then it's because it is. So there's actually no reason for anyone to do this migration, to risk their funds when they could also just withdraw, see if the migration worked, and then deposit with SushiSwap later. But you got a bonus exactly. if you stayed there. Yeah. They decided to pay a one-time bribe of 2 million sushi to, to everyone who, who would actively stay in the migration. And I mean... The, the reason is basically because they thought if people leave once, it's way harder to get them back, right? So totally. better you keep them in there now and then they might stay in the future. So that's why they did it. And yeah, so the way they went about it is by first they did basically a trial run on, on Testnet twice and um, I think it succeeded both times. Um, and then they went ahead with the mainnet migration and they did just one pool after the other. I think it, it took, I think it took over 24 hours to migrate all of them. Actually, I was um, I was adding to SushiSwap. I mean, I, I guess almost everyone was who's like in some way 
uh, involved with like crypto Twitter. And after seeing that the test migrations had worked, I thought I, I would stay in there as well because of the one-time bonus. But then I thought I was the, like one of the only ones um, who paid attention to this. But like, <laughs> I guess like $800 million stayed in, in the migration contracts. And if you divide it like uh, basically the, the two, like my share of these $800 million by the two million that were going to get paid out, I thought it was not worth the risk. <laughs> I bet not actually. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. That that was it, right? I I was looking at a uh, some dashboard which has been created where they actually had the amount that was still left in, like they showed the percentage that was migrating over, and I think it was around fifty four percent or fifty percent when the migration happened. Am I right? Yeah, something like that. Fifty percent of the people with the LP tokens had taken it out, but fifty percent had left it, or around fifty percent. Fifty percent of the capital. Because that's that would be very different from fifty percent of the LPs, yeah. Oh There's, yeah, and most of the capital is like ten people. But, but yeah, but if you looked at LP tokens, I guess every LP token represents the same amount of capital. It does, yeah, right? It does. Or it doesn't. Yeah. Oh, so then it would be okay. Yeah, so yeah, then it was yeah. yeah. So good. One thing we didn't cover, actually, that's quite important, is sushi. What's the utility of earning sushi? Theoretically, it grants you the right to vote on things. But that got usurped by a six of nine multisig that people basically, you, you now vote on the, the multisig holders. So you have um, and the six of nine representative government. Oh, then. really? We've come back to where we come yeah. back to where we started. Wow. You can vote on some Any other things. Doesn't it still need to hit a quorum of sushi stakers? Yeah, but it's still like who implements it? This is not comp governance. Oh, yes. This is not like yeah. Tezos governance. So, this yeah. is like the six of nine benevolent Tarun, can you go back and explain how, like, what is special about comp governance? Like, why does everyone think this is the best way to do governance in crypto? Tezos is the one uh -huh. who pioneers okay. of, like, you submit a piece of code, people vote on the piece of code, uh, and then the code gets executed. Um, so you're not just voting on, like, the proposal as a proposal. You're voting on the implementation and execution of the proposal, and it automatically gets executed. On yeah. all of the funds. Compound is at 22 proposals that your vote is binding. And Compound has had 22 successful proposals. It's been able to change itself quite a bit. Whereas a lot of other governance is not quite like that, where like there's an on-chain like execution of the thing you're voting on. And right now there's actually this whole uh so Sushi was using something called Snapshot, which is built by Balancer, which lets you do off-chain voting, but like you you stake your tokens to, to vote. And then it can eventually be executed on chain. And I think that like there's we're going to find some hybrid. But mm -hmm. I think comp is kind of the reason all of the food coins copy pasta comp governance is like it is the only Ethereum DeFi smart contract that has truly like execution level governance where like you can actually submit a new comptroller, which is the, the main contract in, in compound. You submit a new comptroller. You tell the proxy contract, point to the new controller, and people vote on the address that it's pointing to. And you're, you're technically only voting on the address, but that address is where the deployed code is. And so, but it, it's a fully functioning system that has worked. And so that's why everyone copy pastas it. The problem is that, like, all of these food coins 
are like, hey, you know, we want like tons of governance. Oh, actually, we want six of nine multi-sigs and like we're not going to implement the proposal. We're just going to like you're going to vote on it and then maybe it'll get implemented. Oh, wow. What would you even call this? It Like in the description of like on-chain versus off-chain governance, would this still be off-chain then? It's still mostly off-chain, right? So you basically express you gauge, gauge interest for a proposal on-chain, but the entire execution and the trust in basically the execution is, is all off-chain. I mean, go governance is thorny and like all, of, you know, Hasu, Hasu as a governance minimalist maximalist, <laughs> got minimal governance maximalist, MGM, would say it, it does introduce a lot of problems. I do think, however, Compound's model makes a lot of sense because you, you, you want a bank where you can just vote on changing the interest rates. I think the governance for AMMs doesn't make that much sense. Uniswap has a factory contract that you can just say add market and anyone can call add market. There's literally nothing stopping you at all from using it. That's the reason these things could exist. And yet they want to tell you like you're going to own some governance over Uniswap. Like mm. it doesn't yeah, make that much sense. Yeah, you bring up a very important point. Like the, the force and against of governance tokens basically, right? And there are some projects that can't work without governance tokens because they require basically an, you could say an Oracle input, right? They, they require humans to make decisions about certain parameters on a bespoke basis, um, such as in compound, like what, what would be like safe collateral to add? What kind of collateral ratio do we, do, do we have for each collateral? What are, what is like the interest rate curve, whatnot? So how do we upgrade maybe the protocol in a way that users don't have to migrate manually to the new contract, right? So you have this like way more for users, way more comfortable auto upgrade process. And when you, you have a scenario where people have to make decisions and these decisions have like a lot of power over the protocol, right? Because in Compound's case, you could also point the proxy contract to a controller that just withdraws all user funds and sends them to yourself, you know, that, so that would work. And what prevents this is A, it's a time delay. So a compound contracts take 48 hours to activate after a change. And then during that time, anyone can just withdraw their funds from the old contract. But I mean, there's like over a billion dollars in compound. And I mean, it's, it's not realistic that everyone is going to, to be available to withdraw. To, to, to give you some color on that, um, a deprecated coin, Psi, single collateral die, there's still around $400,000 of Psi sitting in Compound because people forgot to it, that they put it in. and Can they still it. withdraw it? Do you know? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, can, they can withdraw it. I mean, it, it, it's withdraw yeah. only. You, you're not getting any okay. interest. So they like basically reduce the incentives, but like people are still yeah, not withdrawing true. it. So, But lost funds stuff happens yeah. everywhere. The, the second... Thing I would mention about these governance zones is when you have people who need to make good decisions and that their decisions matter, then you need to incentivize them to make good decisions, right? Because if you don't, then they might make a bad decision. And that's really why basically you add governance tokens and then siphon off basically some of the revenue the protocol generates, or you actually add revenue at all in the first place, right? You add some rent, you charge users, and then you, you basically funnel that to, to the governors. This is acceptable for users when the protocol wouldn't work without governors because then the users know, hey, we need to pay governors in order for the protocol to work. This is like mining in Ethereum or Bitcoin. So 
without mining or staking, the protocol wouldn't work. So this is a service that the users are happy to pay for. But when you have another protocol that maybe would work just fine without governance, which Uniswap does, right? Uniswap is a public good, just like Tarun said, and it has no rent, it has no governance token right now. And then you fork that, and then you add a governance token and add rent and make it basically more expensive for people to use because you pay this you know, class of governance token holders that don't really add anything, at least not yet, then it's it's really the question why people should use this over the rent-free version. And that's really the case for governance minimalism, right? In general, like, I mean, all of us are kind of in this space because we, we want to kind of build better systems, right? Because we are in some way unhappy with the systems out there in a traditional world. And one of the promises, in my opinion, of crypto is that you have protocols that extract the minimum amount of rent that is necessary for the protocol to be sustainable. And basically, you could say that SushiSwap and other coins of this era, they basically violate this uh, principle that we have in the crypto space. And that's why I'm not optimistic about their, their sustainability. So... We've now kind of walked through the migration as well. It was successful. At that point, I guess a lot of people were kind of patting themselves on the back. The prices, even though they had dropped a fair bit, had sort of leveled off. And then there was this potentially for, as we've discussed in this episode, potentially for um, for show or for continuing this amazing narrative. The sushi chef comes back. Chef Nomi gives all of the ETH back to the dev fund, apologizes profusely to everyone involved. Do you think, I mean, it's all speculative here, but do you think it was not a genuine person behind some of those notes? A genuine person or just a sock puppet or? Yeah, and feels bad. Like, yeah, I got I mean, the sense just, it was If we real. just apply Orkham's razor, then it makes way more sense that it is a genuine person. And like SushiSwap is a genuine project, but... Like these bigger players that we talked about who basically fight these like way more important in the grand scheme of things battles, that they saw this pawn and basically used them for their purpose. So that that makes way more yeah. sense to me that that's how it played out. And after this point, so like the funds were returned. There was like a little bit mm -hmm. of like fanfare around that. And then there was also an airdrop. Like what's happening now? There's just like, it seems like a few, like a lot of the LP, even though they might've gone along with the migration, a lot of them seem to be actually shifting back to Yeah, Uniswap. so there are three big, three events that we could still mention. So the first one we touched on is basically the, the one-time bonus for people who stayed with the migration. I think that's been paid out. And then you have the $14 million uh, that were returned by Chef Nomi. So there was also the community had to kind of decide what to do with that money. And previously, people would have maybe been fine with like just saying, okay, put it in, put it in governance, uh, put it in the treasury, I mean, and then just invest it into the protocol. But you kind of, you can tell how the time preference of this community has changed as they feel basically that sushi is indeed not sustainable and will basically wither off and die, that they all went around and said, why not use this money for a one-time stock 
buyback program. So basically we use all the money to buy back sushi and then lock it up in the treasury. And the way this works, it is basically a, a dividend of Ether to all the sushi holders. So I, hmm. I think they decided to do that. And I think it was actually executed today or last night or something around that. So yeah, that, that is, that is uh, the second thing. And then the third would be that, so there was actually this, I mentioned that you got around a thousand sushi per block, right? That was the block reward that all the stakers were competing for. And this inflation was never going to continue forever, but it was actually going to well, stop at some point. And so that actually, it didn't stop, but they, they basically reduced it by 10x. So there's now a hundred sushi. So it's no longer Uniswap at PShares, but you no longer stake the sushi swap at PShares with sushi swap. And that's why, well, you kind of saw a lot of liquidity disappear, like expectedly, right? So the moment of yeah. truth for sushi swap was always going to be what happens when the subsidy disappears, basically. And what we saw was a lot of people switching back. Yeah. Uniswap didn't lose anything from that, right? So they, they still have more uh, liquidity than they had beforehand. But I mean, the thing is why we can't, the, the sushi swap subsidy hasn't really stopped yet. Well, yes, sushi, the, the kind of sushi dividend has, uh, has leveled off, but there are now all these new farming coins that you can actually not just use the Uniswap LP shares in, but you can also use the sushi swap LP shares in. So you have these third party subsidies and it would make total sense even just for sushi swap to just fork itself, right? Just uh, did exactly what SushiSwap did to Uniswap and have like vamp quote unquote vampire attacks, but they're really just fake attacks on, on itself just to give people this kind of fake dividend to keep them providing with SushiSwap, so yeah. I guess one of the questions that ha like I've been left with is like, is Uniswap safe? Like, yeah, they su they succeeded in keeping all of the liquidity and bringing it, like, for the most part, bringing a lot of it back or even generating more. But is this story saying, and Uniswap wins because they're the better product somehow and, like, they'll always win? Or is it is it actually potentially, like, a, a sign of things to come? So one thing I think that's quite important to, to remember here is, is, you know, there's a bunch of recursive leverage going on uh, that like recursive in a way that like is not true in the normal markets. Like if I right now, let's say I put some money into a hedge fund, the hedge fund gives me some piece of paper that says Tarun owns 10% of our AUM and fee, whatever, pays fees or whatever. I take that piece of paper and I go to Goldman Sachs. I'm like, hey, look, 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 look. Here is a piece of paper that says I have a million dollars at this hedge fund. Can I borrow $200,000 against this piece of paper? And so like you give Goldman Sachs your shares, LP shares, they're actually called LP shares but for a limited partner, not for a liquidity provider. You give them to Goldman Sachs and you say, all right, give me 200K because I need some money. I take that 200K and I go like put in another hedge fund. In current crypto land, people are doing that same set of processes a hundred times. It's not like, and in the real world, it's actually quite hard. It's not as easy. There's like so much friction to doing things like that. 
So what happens when you keep doing this like recursive thing of like, I took my Uniswap shares, I staked it, I earned some sushi, I can now take the sushi, stake it somewhere else, earn some more. There's a certain sense in which, how long can the free money train keep going? And I guess I, I, wrote, I wrote a tweet about my theory for how this all ends, uh, which I've decided to term degenocalypse. But I think we got another we got another suggestion on Twitter that was actually better, which is degentrification. So degen is degenerate, who is like these kind of gamblers. Degentrification is pretty good, but the idea is that is related to an event that happened in the the normal markets in 2018 in February, also which got called Volmageddon. Um, but what happens is when you own a Uniswap share and. I know you were talking about Uniswap being safe as the protocol itself has made a moat and it itself is safe. But let's talk about the users who are liquidity providers. Are they safe? We've talked about this impermanent loss. Formally speaking, it's it's like you're you're doing something called selling gamma. And what happens is that you have this thing where people are structurally short volatility. So like when you own a Uniswap sh- share, you want a bunch of volatility because you earn fees as the price moves up and down, but you don't want it to drift too much. You don't want one token to be way, to go way higher than where you started. And Curve geniusly takes advantage of this uh, to, to maximize LP returns because it's stablecoin, stablecoin, and they're all mean reverting. They're supposed to be around the dollar, but they trade up and down around the dollar. So. But the problem is you're, you're sort of structurally short volatility in a certain way. Like you want volatility, but you don't want too much that it like drifts far from where you started. Because then you have this permanent loss. And, and technically, it's not even really volatility. It's gamma. But let's just for, for your mental model, just think of it as shortfall. The problem is if you have too much of the market as being short volatility, like you have a community of speculators, right? And you have a community of like natural demand. And if too much of the market is incentivized to be short volatility, at each level of recursion, you're going to have to give more and more and more tokens away until you come to the point that the community at whole has locked up all of the capital that is being willing to be committed into these short volatility shares, and there's no one buying. And the moment that a token has to issue more than the total amount of capital that the community is willing to put into LP shares, is the moment it all collapses. And so this happened during Balm again. In the real stock market. In the, in the real, in the real market. Real, I should, <laughs> traditional? What so do we that, call it? <laughs> does that refer to pools where any of these like food tokens are staked or to all pools? Yeah, so like the hot potato is, I have a pool share, I stake it, I now get, I get 10% APY or whatever, you know, these calculations are all gerrymandered too. But I get 10% interest according to the thing. Great. Now the next thing comes out and it's like, hey, stake your thing and get, I don't know, like get our food token and we're going to give you 100% APY. The next thing comes and says, we're going to give you a thousand. Eventually, at some point, the APY has to be so large that's bigger than the entire speculator community. And we've seen that happen. That's why you see these things are like 2 million percent APR. This is all because they have to incentivize you to move from the previous one. But at some point, it's bigger than the amount of capital the community has and everyone is short volatility and that will screw everything over because there's going to be a volatile event when a peg breaks and the biggest peg in this system right now is susd to usdc really i thought it was tether 
No, no, no. Well, but you trust Tether to go like, like, or in the sense that like you're to trusting cash. third party. Oh. Synthetics okay. relies on these pool shares to keep SUSD at a dollar. And if Synthetics's peg breaks, everyone's fucked. Yeah, SUSD really has no real stabilizing mechanism, uh, not, at least in the sense that the other stablecoins have it. But now can we actually cover that last question, sort of going back to that original question, which is the moat around Uniswap itself? Yeah, sure. Is there a moat? Well, around the protocol. So, I mean, what really is Uniswap, right? So Uniswap, Uniswap is basically a brand, right? And Uniswap is basically the framework that, that a factory that basically creates all these, these liquidity pools that you can then trade against. And it, it provides you a user interface, but it's, it's also integrated with, some of the um, like meta exchanges, you could say, right? So like one inch or matcha where you can trade and then they find the best price for you. It's sort of like kayak for, for traveling, right? So they just find the best uh, trade for you, not just, not even for your entire trade, right? So they, they can also just route across many different exchanges and find the best trade for you. So I, I think that, that in itself shows the kind of modes that an exchange like Uniswap can have. So on the one hand, you have the people who go to that trusted user interface who always trade with Uniswap because they are used to it. They know how it works. It's what they trust. Mm -hmm. They have all their tokens approved with Uniswap, which is, I mean, that's like a genuine thing that people care about, right? So if you go to a new exchange and want to trade there, you have to reauthorize, reapprove all of the tokens yeah. that you want to trade again. So yeah, so I mean, the brand is definitely a big thing. But then the, th the, the second thing we, we touched on is the integrations, right? So an exchange that is integrated with other protocols, that's not something that you can fork, right? You, you can, but you, you can't fork the integrations. And so you basically have to, you know, do the same kind of politics, jump through the same hoops that Uniswap has and be like, just be there and be reliable in a way that like others, others want to build businesses that rely on you being there sort of and um, uniswap has done that and that's why it has so many integrations with the uh, yeah with other uh, protocols hmm. now that in a way we've we've seen the arc we've seen it go from the start to the top with all of the excitement and and conversation around it what do we think could be coming up in the future for generally governance tokens and D and dexes, I guess. Like, do those are those things compatible? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not sure. I, I, we we have to find out because Uniswap also. I mean, it's not wrong that Uniswap has VC backers, and I mean, you would have to think that before they invested in Uniswap, there's some kind of long-term vision about extracting rent from the protocol. So SushiSwap is is a project that basically took Uniswap and added a token and failed to disrupt Uniswap. So it makes me kind of wonder how does Uniswap want to disrupt itself by adding a token? So if they add a token, what else do they add to incentivize people to migrate over? So that, that would be like something really interesting to brainstorm because I mean, frankly, some LPs that I've talked to are just unhappy with like the way Uniswap works in general just uh, the kind of curve that they use and they think it, it doesn't minimize like permanent loss enough. And there are like some generally some new exchanges like Balancer or Dodo that try to go like a different route and try like different curves. Or for example, Balancer has this, this feature that 
that basically the 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 pool itself, the curve itself, can change based on input from like an external contract. So you can actually tell the contract to, for example, to withdraw liquidity automatically or change basically the way it, it, it quotes prices based on external market conditions. And that is something that basically all all market makers on centralized exchanges on on central limit order book exchanges do. But that's something that you can't do on a DEX. So it would be interesting to see if maybe these two worlds are going to merge a bit more in the future. And that was, that was something that I would really like your input on to ruin. Yeah, so I, I guess I'm going to maybe paint a more optimistic pro Uniswap take, which is I'm really excited for the features in V3. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they, it's not, they're not a team that's like not paying attention to this. And I think that, yeah, there's going to be a world where there's a hybrids of order books and, and AMMs, in particular CFMMs, but there might be some others. And second, I think there's actually some really amazing products that you can make that the de- design space is actually quite open for that aren't just these kind of LP shares that spread your liquidity over the entire price range and also like, you know, are short straddles, right? Like if you think about the normal trading world, there's tons and tons of derivative strategies for options, futures, whatever. But when you're Uniswap LP or Balancer LP, you're really only executing this one strategy. Um, and so I think a lot of the work, you know, certainly that me and, and Alex, who, who was on the ZK podcast at one point, have been working on is trying to prove that there's like a certain space of derivatives that are replicated by owning a Uniswap LP share. So each share can represent certain types of strategies or certain types of derivative products. And this idea that you can somehow merge derivative products into something that's really easy to own is quite amazing. Like I think derivatives don't have good UX ever. And like the idea that I can just own one share and it actually corresponds to this derivative strategy is extremely powerful. I think normal finance people like Sam is probably the first one of like normal finance people to, to realize this. But like, I think normal finance people, when they wake up to this, will be like, holy shit, we can replace almost all of Goldman's structured trading desk with like a piece of code. So to me, that's that it's, it's just about replacing the investment bank with a smart contract. Do you think that Uniswap version three will have a token? Or do you, I mean, if you know, you shouldn't answer because I don't know. So I can generally speculate. I, I'll just say that investors don't invest in things that are uninvestable. Yeah. <laughs> that makes cool. sense. Yeah, I mean, something that I said earlier that we walked back on. So, I mean, there's the, the idea that the investors continue to treat Uniswap as a public utility on Ethereum that could pay off if they own enough Ether and enough adjacent products that maybe use Ethereum. Um, and a lot of, a lot, frankly, a lot of protocols use uh, Uniswap as a building block and benefit from it. So, I mean, that is maybe the one exception where you could argue that something like Uniswap could be investable for very large um, VCs or foundations or whatever without like paying off, without having to pay off. But I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I wouldn't uh, hold my breath that there won't be a token. Well, I don't know if I should be the concluding person here on this part because this is actually going to be on Uncommon Core. Do you want to close out the episode? I mean, I can just say if you listen to this episode and the tale of sushi and I mean the stuff that's going on 
beneath the tip of the iceberg and all the drama and yeah like you're not a, you're not paying attention and you're not on crypto twitter and what are you even doing with your life <laughs> i mean thanks yeah thank you both for the conversation it was totally a lot of lots fun. of alpha leaks alpha so leaks much everywhere. info yeah and hopefully like i guess to listeners of this do let us know if you like this kind of interesting cross podcast crossover episode um, and maybe we can we can try it out again if you enjoyed this interview please leave us a rating and review in your podcast app or share it on social media your support goes a long way in making this show sustainable for us thanks for listening <laughs>